0: Welcome to the Boy Open Up Podcast, where we go from tangle to unpacked.
1: I'm your emotionally shattered host, Doug Hildreth, <laughs> and with me as always is my codependent black belt, Christine Stacy. What started as a 30-day social media challenge has blossomed into a rapidly growing movement across the globe where we break down life and society through feelings. The topics and discussions on this podcast are adult in nature, so listener discretion is advised. We want to remind everybody that the thoughts and opinions expressed here are solely our own and nobody else's. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and share this podcast with your friends and family. Last week, we did the first uh, really two-part or multiple-part series. I think this is going to turn into something we come back to quite a bit episode, but we were touching on and diving into the, the failings. I guess is the best way to put it, of the addiction treatment community and, and the whole process that is it, that built into it and the way that they go about it. And we touched on, the big premise for me is that my lived experience over the last almost 16 years being clean and sober, but really for the last 30 years of my life has been that the major underlying themes of my life and processes of change and processes of pain, processes of development, have all been highlighted for moments of trauma. As a child, as an adolescent, and then even as an adult. And those have resulted in tremendous growth, but only because I was able to make it far enough along in my recovery To have a chance to access help for those things. So for me, what it really comes down to, and this is where we're going to really dive in, is I guess the biggest question I have to ask is why the hell isn't it changing? That's what I keep asking. Why haven't we come up with a better way? Why aren't we bringing a better method to the table? And why the fuck aren't we trying different things to save people that are dying? Why aren't we addressing root causes is really what it's about.
0: Yeah, so on the root causes, uh, one thing, I want to kind of go back real
2: quick.
1: Okay. You're good at this.
0: Yeah, so, because I'm sitting here thinking, you know, we have a lot of people who listen and who may not be familiar with or in the field of or mm-hmm. feel like they have any kind of firsthand experience with addiction mm. they probably do um, they are unaware of but uh, there's probably a handful of people that yeah that specific genre of uh, um, what am I trying to say of a like facility they don't really no, anyone that's gone to one or know kind of what it's about.
1: Right, so anyways, they don't understand the process.
0: Right, so all that aside, uh, trauma, that's what we've been talking about. I'm curious because you've been reading a few books.
1: I read a lot of books.
0: Yeah, specifically about it and ways to define it. So I'm curious uh, how you, and I'd love to hear from these books too, how they define trauma. Because we've talked about why it's scary to talk about it, why it's scary to talk to people about their trauma Mm. and relate it to their behavior and all those kind of things, but what is it?
1: I would say the simplest definition of it would be an event of significant impact emotionally or physically. Okay. I think that's the best way to say it because I believe that we live in a world where there's really a very wide gap and people stand on one side of the fence like and say and see trauma and recognize trauma and they talk about trauma and they engage in it and then there's a lot of other people who think things like trauma are bullshit. Things right?
0: happen and it doesn't stay with
1: you. Right. People that think that PTSD is bullshit or right. people that think that depression is bullshit or people that think that you know, being bipolar is bullshit, that it's somehow a choice, mm-hmm. that you just need to buck up or toughen up, you know, and there, there's that weird, it's almost that weird generational gap mm-hmm. to a degree, but it's not generational, right. it doesn't even fall on political lines, mm-hmm. it's really interesting when you start seeing the different types of people that, that fit onto each side of the line, because it really is kind of all over, yeah. but that's the biggest thing, I would say it's an event of significant impact, emotionally or physically, that results in what we define as trauma. Right. Right? It leaves a lasting impact on the body and the mind.
0: And that's what you've been learning about, right? Is how it leaves that lasting impact and what it looks like. And sometimes we aren't unaware.
1: Correct. How we store it. Right. Yeah. How we file it away. That, that's the thing is it's how we file it away. And then things that fit that profile later can trigger that response emotionally or physically, right? Like, yeah, I can have a physical response to certain types of conversations mm-hmm. because I was verbally, emotionally abused as a child. So when people talk to me in a certain tone of voice, if I'm not in the right headspace and I'm not prepared, mm-hmm. it can literally trigger me and make me feel like a seven-year-old little boy. Mm-hmm. And people happen—that happens every day, right? That happens in your workplace, that happens with your boss, it happens with your coworkers, it happens in, at the corporate world. That's the weird thing is that trauma happens everywhere. Yeah. And we carry so much with us as human beings that it's fascinating that it's not a direct correlation to extremely toxic and unhealthy behaviors like substance abuse, mm-hmm. like pornography consumption, mm-hmm. Right? Like sex addiction. Yeah. That things like that somehow are just behavioral and or, right, the disease model. Oh well you're just genetic. You know, right. it's just a genetic right. thing yeah. because you carry a genetic predisposition to liking those things. Right. And I and I'm not saying that there may not be a link there.
0: Oh yeah, for right? sure. I think some people's personalities just lean towards like Mm -hmm. More, more, more. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's type A. It's a
1: type A personality. I'm very much a type A person. Mm -hmm. I like things that make me feel good. Period. I got an itch, I scratch it. Right? And I'll scratch it over and over again until it bleeds. Mm -hmm. Because it feels good until it bleeds. Yeah. (laughs) That doesn't mean it's good for me. Right. To scratch the itch.
2: Yeah.
1: But when we're talking about these treatment centers... Or just treatment in general. Mm-hmm. It, it's baffling to me that the, the number one approach is we're going to get you into detox. So we're going to get you clean. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times now we're synthetically medicating them to get them off drugs. Right. And then putting them in a group therapy session and not talking about the things that led to them becoming there, being there. It's literally talks about what was your drug use like? You know, what do you do when you have a craving? We start getting into the steps and we want to go to this and a lot of the 12 step programs and even a lot of the treatment centers will push that model. of Immediately defining that, you know, we're powerless over that behavior and as a result our lives become unmanageable. And that is absolutely true. My question again is, why?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Why am I powerless? over it and the simple answer would be well you're just a drug addict you're just an alcoholic that's what you are and okay let's concede that let's say that I was born that way I was predisposed to it and I definitely could be it runs in my family on both sides was I predisposed to being a sex addict? because I wasn't when I was young
2: okay.
1: right like I didn't have any weird behavior around masturbation growing up. None of those things occurred. I didn't over consume pornography when it was available to me in my teens and even in my early twenties. Those things didn't happen. That behavior didn't manifest. So why is it that that behavior manifested in my mid twenties and peaked in my early thirties, right? That doesn't make sense to me. Those are things like that where I don't, I don't understand. And just saying Oh, you're a sex addict. Right. That, that doesn't add up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because um, cessation doesn't fix the problem. So for me, not having sex doesn't take away my obsession for sex. Mm-hmm. And that's the real thing, is where did the obsession come from? Right? Mm-hmm. A significant impact occurred when I was very young that normalized sex for me that I didn't even realize had totally normalized sex for me see that's the thing like we've talked about this from the age of 4 to 10 I was already sexually active and that's a weird thing to talk about And, and and it's awkward for a lot of people to hear but it was incredibly normal for me and not because I enjoyed it or because I thought it was okay but because that was what was happening behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. So for me, I grew up incredibly accustomed.
2: And to
0: be clear, it was not your choice.
1: I was 4, no 4-year-old makes that choice. Yes, right. it, was, I, it well, was it was it was <laughs> abuse and rape. Yes. Yeah. But again, like that is a significant impact. Mm-hmm. And I can say with with 100% confidence what I did was absolutely learn how to Stuff all of that. Mm-hmm. I learned how to pack that away neatly. I learned how to protect myself. I learned how to protect others from the reality of what happened to me, mm-hmm. and go about my life. The problem is, is that it, all of a sudden, every time something major that was of significant impact happened, mm-hmm. I would have manifestations of new unhealthy behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. So at twelve, my great grandma gets hit by a car crossing the street, significant impact because she raised me emotionally. Yeah. She was my safe person. Right. That resulted in me starting to shoplift from stores mm-hmm. and drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. And then I started smoking pot. And then I started doing psychedelics. And then I started doing white drugs. And then I was a full-blown drug addict. So was, was marijuana the gateway drug? Or was the trauma that happened to me when I was four the thing that made me so desperate to find normalcy that I sought anything out even something that I knew was bad for me right. to make the pain stop yeah. and that's what I don't understand is why we're not treating that
2: Right.
1: and why it's acceptable I mean here we are like The understanding and the definition of alcoholism came about in the mid-1930s, right? And that was when essentially at the same time for substance abuse, addiction came along a little later because you couldn't just say that people that just used drugs were alcoholics, right? right? So there's a little brief history on the the development. But in 1935 is when, you know, the 12-step program started to be born. And God bless them for the work that they've done being non-professionals. But the best we've been able to come up with since June 10th, 1935, is to tell people to go to meetings. Yeah. And I'm not saying that that is not a solution, but what I'm saying is that that is ridiculous that that's the only thing we can offer. Yeah. 75 years later.
0: Yeah. That's crazy when you put it like that. So, because we've been discussing this, we've been having. Oh, there you go. Discussing this, and you've been having meetings with some people about it, mm. and we've been engaging in other people like across multiple different, uh, like social work and. Yep. Uh, I can't even think. But we've talked to so many different people in different yeah, fields about it. A-
1: absolutely, because I wanted to know, right? Like you're saying, keep going. I wanted to know what was being done.
0: Yeah. So it it sounds like. From what we have kind of tapped into, there's like pockets, there's books, there's authors, there's bits doing, going on that is very focused around this. Like I remember mm-hmm. seeing something recently about in, in our small town about a trauma focused small group mm. uh, and I meant to screenshot it and send it to you. And so that you know, there's like these tiny pockets. Yeah,
1: where it's popping up.
0: Right, but it seems like, and and obviously this is how history is. It starts slower. It's not like bam, it all changes. Um, But what do you think? Why do you think there's some people who seem to really get it and have Mm. been, and that like I would say, Brittany Brown, someone who's been kind of in the forefront of having conversations about emotion. Emotional intelligence and... Connection.
1: Connection, all yeah. these things. I mean, she's a pioneer.
2: She is.
0: Yeah. And But there's still so many people and areas and stuff that are still behind.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that are literally living in the past.
0: Diagnosing
1: yeah. from the past, treating from the past. And your question is why?
0: Yeah, why do you think we're still...
1: Like, oh, man. I
0: guess I would... I, just to give you my perspective, and I think I said this the last time, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but as a psychology major who graduated in 2005 with a bachelor's in psychology, I just assumed mm-hmm. that you talk through like your psychology and what makes you work and tick the way you do.
1: Well, and you do to a degree.
2: Okay.
1: But a lot of the recovery process right and this is same for me is about taking ownership of our wrongdoings and there's not a lot of stuff in there about where we were wrong because it's our job to find our part hmm. and take ownership for our responsibility because we're so great and I mean this and, and I say we all speak for me I don't want to generalize for other people when I'm in an unhealthy place mentally I'm really fucking good at being the victim and we have a saying in, in recovery, and there's a big saying in the rooms, and I used to think it was really powerful, and it's victims don't recover. And that is true to a degree. We also have to acknowledge that at some point we may have been a victim. Right. And I didn't make that connection, mm-hmm. that, that they're not, they're not separate. Right. That those two things, you can say victims don't recover and still acknowledge that it was possible to have been victimized, but you're not going to allow yourself to be a victim of that. You're going to grow through the experience, right? I used to just think that it was a mentality, and if I was going to live in that victim stance, then I was going to be, then that was an excuse or a crutch that I had to get rid of, or I was going to drink or use. Yeah. The reality of it is, is I didn't, I didn't use that crutch to drink or use. I used that crutch to work out like crazy. I used that crutch to watch porn. I used that crutch to have sex. I found a different crutch. Right because the emotional pain of the trauma was still there and so that's what's so crazy and you say why why aren't we why aren't we doing more why aren't we treating this why aren't there more treatment centers that are available to it and that's a really good question yeah why Uh, it's a 44 billion dollar industry (laughs) that so that's what's fascinating to me is we're, we're talking about a massively lucrative industry with very little regulation it's basically the fucking wild west of medicine. Yeah. That's what's crazy to me. Huh. But here's what's crazier. It's the wild west of medicine and you're literally playing a life or death game. This is for the breath of people's lives. Okay. And somehow it's fucking acceptable to fail 85% of the time. Yeah. Or to put out a shit product that doesn't help someone. Now this includes the insurance agencies, like you talk about big picture, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything like that, I don't think it's all for profit, I genuinely believe the majority of the people in the field are trying to help, but the bigger COGS in the system focus on what they, like they focus on their thing, which is CBT, like Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, or we're going to focus and we're going to be a 12-step based program. And and that's fine. And then you have other places like you said that are popping up that say, well, we're going to dive into trauma, Mm -hmm. and that's great. And then you have other places that say, well, we're going to do the the twelve step method of recovery, but we're going to do it as Christians. And then you have the, well, we're gonna we're methamphetamine addicts, we're going to do it with methamphetamines. We have this program over here if you're an overeater. We have this program over here. I'm not saying that all of them are doing it wrong. the The problem is, it's. N- not fucking cookie cutter. Yeah. And that's what I think is missing and that's why I think it hasn't changed because it's not as profitable and that's the other thing is these fucking treatment centers are making a shit ton of money. Yeah. Their margins are insane. Yeah. They are. Mm-hmm. So it's profitable if you have a program Right. That's and that's the program that everybody gets. But the f- fucking problem is, is that you and I have different lived experience. Right. And you and I have different needs. Mm-hmm. And when we are brand new, we don't know that. Yeah. Fundamentally, yes, we're aware of it. Yeah. But if we're sold on the idea that these things, if I do these things, right. that means I get to live happy, clean, and sober. Right,
0: and then the problem with that, too, is I think like you and I go through a program and it works for you, it doesn't work for
1: me, then... Yeah, you're broken.
0: I'm broken,
1: yeah. Well, why couldn't you get it? Right. I got it.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I can do it, you can do it. Yep. <laughs> but you can't do it my way. Yeah. Right? And the reality of it is, is it's because you may have had completely different emotional needs. And that's what I believe the future of the industry is. Mm-hmm. It's an individualized program That you can still do in group settings. You can still have your group meetings. I believe that you can still have the facilities for those kind of things. But I believe that each person needs to have somebody that designs their program of action based on interviews and conversations. Like I went through inpatient rehab centers and my intake assessment was an hour of questions. And then I went through a program just like everybody else. I remember sitting in what they used to call the biopsychosocial, which was a big thing back in the early 2000s for therapists, and the therapist didn't ask me questions really about myself. He just told me things about me based on their assessment of me.
2: Hmm.
1: And I remember sitting in the room thinking, maybe I was an arrogant 20-year-old, but I was like, you don't even fucking know me, and you're trying to tell me things about who I am and how I am and what I'm feeling. and no one took the time in any of those treatment centers to ask me if I'd been abused as a child. No one took the time when I was in those treatment centers to ask me how I felt about my my lived experience. Yeah. Nobody took the time other than to say, how do you feel about yourself? Right. And when I would say, well, I feel like a piece of shit, you know, because that's easy to be honest about. Nobody goes to these treatment centers or these therapy groups because we're on a fucking winning streak. Yeah. Right? Like, you, I didn't. I don't call my counselor and I'm like, things are fucking going really good. So I just wanted to call you and tell you about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, you go because we're hurting. Right. And so, I, just going into these groups and talking about that, nobody ever followed up with, so where do you think that comes from? Mm-hmm. You know why? Because there's not enough time for the one counselor to ask me and then the 15 other people in the group. Right. That's why. And then there's not enough time for the one counselor to write out a weeks-long worth of work program for me based on that conversation. And give me assignments to come back with. Mm -hmm. That's why. Because we pay that fucking counselor $3,500 a month and give them shit benefits and expect them for $42,000 a year to show up with a great attitude and a winning heart and help save 15 different clients every 28 days right. the fucking model is based on failure and set up for failure
0: right. okay so perfect transition there so what's the first step to take to make a change
1: the first step for me if i was going to design a treatment center would be to start at the beginning i would change the intake process I would have more questions, I would have an actual counselor that asked those questions, I would find out as much as I could about the person before they came. So that we had an idea of what they looked like, I would find out what their personality traits were like, I would find out what their hobbies were, I would find out what their trauma was if they were willing to discuss it in any way and even in generalized forms and then I would get a a couple counselors that they line up with. And I would start there and say, we're going to spend X amount of time in the first week doing interviews, doing assessments, and doing work, and we're going to see which counselor you fit best with. And then that counselor, week by week, with our help, Mm -hmm. is going to help design a program of action that's going to help you walk through this lived experience, help walk through these impactful moments in your life, Mm -hmm. so that in 28 60, 90 days when the time comes for you to re-enter the world. Mm-hmm. You have actual fucking skills. And now what you're looking for is just a support system. And you're ready to go out there because you're armed with tools. Yeah. And you're equipped with skills. Right? That, that's, that would be the first step to me. Is literally change the intake process. You don't have to go completely away from the model. But it has to shift entirely. There's a platform there. I also... Do you want me to keep going? (laughs) That's what I want to know. I mean, we're kind of towards the end of what a normal episode here is, or do we want to make this a three-parter?
0: We might have to make it a three-parter. Okay. I think that's a really good... It's kind of what I was looking for.
1: Uh, Okay. I love it. So (laughs) for those of you that are out there that are listening, if you know somebody that's suffering and you're looking into these treatment centers, do not be afraid to ask them lots of hard questions mm-hmm. about their process. Mm-hmm. And do not be afraid to ask lots of questions about what they're going to do and what their time is going to be like and how it's going to be spent helping them because you're fucking dealing with somebody that's in a life or death mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. And the reality of it is is that you get to ask a lot of questions because you're going to spend a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And there's a very, very very high likelihood that you're not going to get adequate service. And that's why we're doing this podcast right now because people are fucking dying. Mm -hmm. And it's time for that to stop and for it to start to change and it start to shift Mm -hmm. so that we can start seeing increased recovery rates, so we can start seeing happy and purposeful lives, so we can start seeing more families put back together, so we can start seeing more lives lived fully, so that we can start seeing less people go to jail So we can start seeing less people put on fucking medication. Mm -hmm. So that we can start seeing a happier world. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you for opening up with us. We'll talk to you again soon. (laughs)